It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. So I'm happy that we all kumbayaing together. (laughs) So what were the Supreme Court justices agreeing on or kumbayaing together, to put it in Justice Elena Kagan's words? Well, there seemed to be consensus that the minimum standards set in 1977 that's made it relatively easy for businesses to deny workers religious accommodation requests is too minimal. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch. I think there's common ground, too, that de minimis can't be the test, in isolation at least, because Congress doesn't pass civil rights legislation to have de minimis effect, right? We don't think of the civil rights laws as trifling, which is the definition of de minimis. The law says since time immemorial, you know, that the law does not concern itself with trifles. In this case, a Christian U.S. Postal Service worker, when he sued for religious discrimination, he lost at both the trial court and appellate court levels, refused to work on Sunday to deliver Amazon packages, and the rural post office could not accommodate his religious requests. So the real question for the justices was coming up with a test to determine when accommodating the religious views of an employee would mean an undue hardship for the employer. Here's how Justice Brett Kavanaugh posed it. Do you understand uh, undue hardship? I understand that term in the original statute to reflect a balance between two important values, one, religious liberty, and the other, the rights of American businesses to thrive. Uh, And to thrive, you have to be able to um, make money. My guest is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School and the director of the program on Church, State, and Society. Rick, tell us what the focus of the justices was in the oral arguments. The Supreme Court's oral arguments focused on the interpretation of one of the federal civil rights laws, Title VII. And one of the things that Title VII does is it forbids religious discrimination in the workplace. And another thing that it does is that it requires at least some employers to provide reasonable accommodations, is the word the statute uses, to employees who have special religious needs. And what had happened almost 50 years ago now, in 1977, was that the Supreme Court, in a case called Hardison, had interpreted this religious accommodations language in a very narrow way. And a nutshell version is that the court said that if accommodating a religious employee would impose anything more than a minimal cost on the employer, then an accommodation is not required. And, you know, interestingly, at the time, some of the court's more liberal justices, like Justice Marshall, dissented from that. And over the years, scholars have pointed out that that 77 ruling really seems inconsistent with the language of the statute. But it's been in place for a long time. And what the Supreme Court was focusing on in its arguments was how to come up with a test 
for religious accommodations that lines up better with the language of the statutes. So it's not really a case about the First Amendment itself. It's about this statute that Congress passed, you know, part of the Civil Rights Act again, and how to correct a mistaken interpretation to better bring the work of the courts in line with the language of the statute. And interestingly, and this was something that Justice Gorsuch and some of the other justices pointed out, there was a fair bit of consensus among the justices that the 1977 court had made a mistake, that they'd narrowed the statute too much. What the arguments focused on was how best to implement Congress's goal of protecting religious exercise in the workplace while at the same time taking account of employers' interests and other employees' interests. Just going outside the argument for a moment, the Supreme Court had repeatedly declined to revisit religious accommodation standards in other cases. Why take this case where the post office had offered some accommodations to the worker, and times the postmaster himself did deliveries on Sunday because he couldn't find workers. Some workers quit. So it seemed like this was well above a de minimis standard. I wonder why they took this case. Yeah, and I don't have a, a firm theory on that. I mean, over the years, a number of justices, and in a variety of cases, a number of justices have said, look, we really need to revisit this. And uh, so it's, this is a question, the statutory interpretation question that's been on their radar screen for a while. And this particular case in the lower court in the Third Circuit, you had a pretty detailed and clear disagreement among some of the judges, and it sort of it teed up the legal question pretty well, if you want. It could well be, by the way, that the Supreme Court corrects the 1977 decision, puts out a different rule, but that this particular employee still ends up losing, that that could happen. But right now, the issue really is kind of the justices trying to decide, should we promulgate a new standard that lines up with the statutory language better and tell the lower courts and, and tell employers, follow this new standard? The worker's attorney was urging the court to adopt a standard similar to that of the civil rights laws, like the Americans with Disabilities Act. Right. Tell us about that argument. Yeah, so the statute uses the term reasonable accommodation, and, you know, we lawyers are familiar with the use of the term reasonable, but it's not self-defining. What Mr. Street, who's the, the lawyer for the employee here, was saying, yeah, let's analogize this standard in the Title VII religious discrimination provision to some other non-discrimination laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that statute has clearer language, which says, look, employers have to accommodate employees who need it unless the accommodation would impose you know, a significant or a substantial hardship. So that's kind of the language that the lawyer for the employee was after. And one of the things that the justices were trying to get their heads around was, well, is that feasible or would that impose too much cost on employers potentially? And could it, in some circumstances, impose excessive burdens on other employees? So again, the justices all seem to agree that this 1977 rule, which really watered down the statute and made it the case employers almost never had to accommodate employees. They wanted to move away from that, but they were, each of them in different ways, they were all sensitive to the fact that, you know, not every accommodation can be granted. So how do you come up with language that'll provide clear guidance, but also, you know, take account of all the competing factors? Even though, as you mentioned, Justice Elena Kagan even said that there was some level of, of kumbaya between the justices on the bench. But with regard to that, making the standard like the Americans with Disabilities Act, it seemed like the three liberals were against that. They said that this case is based on statutory interpretation and it's up to Congress 
to decide that. Yeah, and I think that some of those judges, but again, not, not only the liberal justices asked questions along this line, were wary of importing language into Title VII that isn't actually in that text and that might be more demanding. Now, the one response to that is, well, you know, the words in the 1977 case, de minimis, aren't in there either. And instead, the language you have in the statute is reasonable accommodation and undue hardship. So I think Mr. Street, the lawyer for the employee, argued, look, Congress did speak. Congress enacted a statute that said accommodate employees unless doing so would impose an undue hardship. We're not asking the court to rewrite what Congress did. We're asking the court to give effect to what Congress did. The concern that you mentioned, and I think Justice Kagan mentioned as well, is, well, look, Congress has known about this 1977 case for a long time. And if Congress wanted to, they could give us clearer guidance about how to implement this statute. And so I think that's one reason why she was nervous about just pulling language from another statute because she thought, well, let's wait and see if Congress wants us to do that. How critical to the decision is it that Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh suggested that this request from the postal worker would have unduly burdened his co-workers by requiring them to cover his hours on Sundays? Yeah, I took them to be raising an issue which is going to come up in a lot of accommodations cases, right, which is if we're asking whether an accommodation would impose an undue hardship on the employer, don't we also have to consider the burden that the accommodation might put on other employees. Now, there have been some lower court cases where employers have denied accommodations and they've just said, well, you know, we can't afford to accommodate employee A because that might make employee B sort of resentful of it. And I I don't think the justices thought that was a very persuasive argument. But if you do have an on-the-job situation where an effort to accommodate employee A really is difficult and would impose, again, undue hardships, not only on the employer's bottom line, but also on other employees. I think that's a factor that Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett wanted to make sure was part of the mix. And so how do you think it'll come out? I think the court, and I suspect this will be unanimous, to be honest, will acknowledge that the 1977 Hardison ruling and the de minimis language doesn't really comport with the statute. And it does sound like there might well be some division among the justices about what kind of a standard the court should supply, whether it's you know more accommodationist or more deferential to employers. And then I don't think the court will resolve for itself whether this particular employee should win. I would expect instead that you know, the case would go back and proceed in line with the new standard. So, you know, I'm just wondering, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission said that the lower courts haven't used Title VII's de minimis cost test. Is that true? Well, there's some dispute about this, right? Some argued, and I should say that I joined a brief that argued this, that when you look over the full array of Title VII cases involving religious accommodations, that a whole lot of courts have denied accommodations when those accommodations would impose really small costs. At the same time, the EEOC argued, as you pointed out, and I think Justice Kagan made this point also, and certainly the Solicitor General did, that even with that de minimis language, at least in some cases, employees have secured accommodations. So this might be one of those things where how you see it depends on where you start from. But in my view, it's pretty clear that employees have not been getting accommodated to the extent that Congress envisioned when it passed Title VII. Thanks for being on the show, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. In a case with legal, economic, and political ramifications, the Supreme Court issued a mixed decision over whether the United States can bring criminal charges against Turkey's state-owned Hawk Bank over allegations it helped Iran to evade economic sanctions by laundering billions of dollars through the U.S. financial system. The justices rejected Hulk Bank's primary argument that federal law prohibits prosecutions of foreign governments and the companies they own. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who made his view clear during the oral arguments, wrote the opinion for seven of the justices. I think it's pretty bizarre for this court to tell the president of the United States, as a matter of his national security exercise, that even though the Constitution doesn't prohibit what you're doing, even though a statute doesn't prohibit what you're doing. This court's going to prohibit your exercise of national security authority. That, talk about big steps. It is. That's huge. But the opinion left the bank with an out, sending the case back to the Second Circuit, where Hall Bank will have a chance to make an argument for sovereign immunity from prosecution under the common law. Two justices, Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito, said they would have ruled definitively that the prosecution of Hall Bank can go forward. Joining me is an expert on constitutional law, Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. So, Hal, start by explaining Hulk Bank's arguments here. Well, Hulk Bank argued in the Second Circuit and in the Supreme Court that they could not be subject to criminal jurisdiction in the United States courts, and they focused on a provision in the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, which was enacted in 1976. And the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act most clearly relates to civil proceedings and confers partial immunity on on foreign instrumentalities for suits in the federal courts. But in one provision, it does talk more generally, suggesting that foreign instrumentalities will be immune from any kind of jurisdiction in the U.S. courts. So the Supreme Court had to determine whether that one provision in the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act conferred immunities in 
criminal cases as well as in civil. And the court concluded that given all the other provisions of Orange Sovereign Immunity Act, which were plainly targeted only at civil activities of foreign instrumentalities, that they would construe the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act in that manner and only to focus on civil activities of foreign instrumentalities and not cover at all any kind of potential criminal jurisdiction. And tell us about the lineup of the justices in the case. The decision was seven to two, but the dissent disagreed with the analysis under the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, but would have reached the same type of conclusion, which would be that it's very likely that Hulk Bank will be found to be not immune by the Second Circuit on remand from the Supreme Court, but they would have arrived at that conclusion in a different manner than the seven justices, the majority, by saying that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act applies, but that Hulk Bank falls within the commercial activity exception. So the opinion gives Hall Bank a possible out, sending the case back to the Second Circuit, where the bank will have a chance to argue for sovereign immunity from prosecution under the common law. But didn't that argument already fail in the lower courts? So what's bizarre about the majority opinion is that it remands the case back to the Second Circuit to determine whether any common law immunities would immunize Hulk Bank from the criminal trial. But in the end of the opinion, the Second Circuit already said that even if the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act didn't apply and we had to look at common law immunities, we would find that Hulk Bank is not immune for two separate reasons. So it's a little unclear why the Supreme Court remanded this case back to the Second Circuit. And the two justices in dissent sort of berated their colleagues for you know, leaving the Second Circuit scratching its collective heads about what it's supposed to do now because it had already ruled pretty clearly on the common law immunity issue. And explain the common law immunity issue for us. So even if the there's no statutory immunity for Hawk Bank, in other words, that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act did not protect them or cloak them with immunity, they might still enjoy some common law immunities from suit given the fact that they are a foreign instrumentality, so they're part of a foreign government. The Second Circuit combed those authorities and said there's two reasons to think that any kind of immunity that existed at common law that may have been adopted by the United States, et cetera, wouldn't apply. The first is because there is a line of precedent, which was mentioned in the concurring opinions in the Supreme Court, which hold that it's the executive that gets to make the decision as to whether foreign instrumentality should be hauled into court for criminal purposes, that that's really a political issue and that court should defer to the executive, meaning the president, in determining whether prosecution should pursue. There's another line of decisions that say that foreign instrumentalities have never been immune from criminal jurisdiction as long as the crimes arise out of commercial activities, which Everybody has held that they did in this case because it was a banking effort to shield billions of dollars of Iranian oil revenue. So on those two grounds, the Second Circuit said, you know, on either one of this, there's an exception for common law immunity if the president says, go ahead and prosecute, and if the actions arose out of commercial activities. So those are the two common law immunities so far that have been exceptions, and the Second Circuit has already articulated them. So presumably they will do so again upon remand. If the Second Circuit rejects this, as we expect they will, since they've done it already, can this go to trial then? Absolutely. It'll go for trial. And Hulk Bank stands to lose 
stands to be fined a tremendous amount if they are found to be, in fact, liable for trying to basically shield all of this Iranian oil money, despite our sanctions that we had applied to Iran. Is there a possibility that they could work out a deal with the U.S. government about a penalty to pay? Yeah, plea bargains are always possible. And indeed, plea bargains, as you know, are frequently entered in to avoid the the cost and uncertainty of a major trial like this. So if the Second Circuit does reject the immunity claim by Hawk Bank, it's likely they will consider some kind of plea agreement, which might then avoid the ugliness of a protracted trial, leaving the end result unclear for Hawk Bank, but also enmeshing or embroiling us in continuing friction with the Turkish government. I just want to note that Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst Elliot Stein estimates that it's 70 percent likely that Hulk Bank will fail to get immunity and wind up paying a penalty that exceeds $1 billion. Now, there's never been a criminal prosecution of a state-owned bank before. So is this decision then precedent-setting? Well, this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever plainly and unequivocally said that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, which again was agreed to in 1976, only applies to civil cases. That Congress was not concerned about criminal cases when it enacted this statute, and it was only focused on tort or contract actions against foreign instrumentalities. So that is the clear precedent-setting feature of this case. Most people thought that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act did not apply to criminal activities, but people weren't sure, and there were some different sort of dicta in lower court decisions. So that's been put to rest, and we know that the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act only addresses civil conduct. This is a case that didn't go down ideological lines. Not at all. And, in, and indeed, the two concurring justices, Justice Gorsuch and, and Justice you know, Alito, are obviously usually voting along with Justices Kavanaugh and Thomas, but they they split in this case. So, Hal, let's turn now to another case where there was no ideological split. The Supreme Court unanimously said that companies and people facing agency investigations or complaints by the SEC or FTC can go straight to federal court with some constitutional challenges. So following the trend of the Supreme Court to hem in the administrative state... And again, it's a decision which did not reflect ideological lines, although I agree with you, it follows a trend of the justices to rein in the power of the administrative state. Those were continuing at a very heavy pace. The case concerned the question about whether individuals and companies who are subject to enforcement orders by administrative agencies can, in in the midst of those proceedings, stop and file a lawsuit in district court to get the district court to rule on what is termed structural challenges to the agency. Issues such as the fact that the agency is unconstitutionally structured under Article 2 of the Constitution, or that Congress delegated too much authority to the agency under Article 1 of the Constitution, or the fact that they are entitled to a jury trial because the issue at at stake relates to something that was subject to jury trials at the time of the founding. So obviously there's a whole panoply of these challenges that are pending around the country. And prior to the case Exxon that the Supreme Court decided, every lower court case said this is crazy to interrupt these administrative proceedings to allow a list of some unknown constitutional questions to be aired 
because it just means it's more of a ping pong ball between the Court of Appeals and the District Court and the agencies. And let's group all these claims in one together and have them aired if the party loses before a court. And the court will then be able to assess both statutory, procedural, and constitutional claims together. Indeed, when Justice Kavanaugh was on the D.C. Circuit, he similarly ruled that these challenges have to be grouped together. You don't want to interrupt an administrative process while it's going on to give the incentive to the parties to raise these constitutional challenges. But surprisingly, in my mind, the unanimous Supreme Court has held that we don't know what a structural claim is. They didn't give very good guidance to the lower courts. But if you raise a certain kind of constitutional challenge to an administrative agency, you can go right to district court and have that adjudicated prior to completion of an enforcement proceeding against your company or against an individual. What I don't quite understand is, so you have these challenges that are constitutional challenges. So they're challenges that anyone can bring up. So doesn't this mean that everyone who gets sued by the SEC or the FTC is going to bring up these challenges and and try to take it to district court? It's an absolute invitation for anyone subject to FDIC or the DA or the SEC, FTC, and so forth to figure out some kind of challenge because delay means money. And so if your client is subject to some kind of losing of a license or a permit or something else, you know that time is money. And so it's a wonderful incentive to go and figure out some kind of so-called constitutional claim that's never been raised before. It's been raised by other parties because that will then force the district courts to schedule those arguments and gain possibly delay for your client and delay is money. So it's a very impractical decision. But I think that you're right to note that this goes along with the decisions that are circumscribing administrative authority. The, The legal issue turns on the question of what's congressional intent. When Congress sets up a scheme with review of the administrative agency's final decision in the Court of Appeals, did it intend to implicitly preclude interlocutory or non-final challenges to agency authority? That's the legal issue. And I think it's pretty clear in thinking about the final judgment rule that Congress has imposed in the federal courts that when Congress sets up these review mechanisms, it intends non-final challenges to be only decided when the review of the entire case goes to the Court of Appeals. But the court decided otherwise unanimously. And indeed, Justice Gorsuch says that we as the court have an unflagging obligation to exercise jurisdiction unless Congress very, very clearly tells us we shouldn't do so. And so he's suggesting that all of these administrative review schemes, unless Congress says, and no other challenge shall be cognizable in court prior to review of the final decision, unless Congress says that, that district courts can entertain challenges to administrative agencies. And what's striking about that is that's simply not the way our federal court system is set up because individuals who lose summary judgment motions or companies that lose motions to dismiss can't get those challenges, even if they're very similar to the ones that are at play in the Axon case itself. They can't get those into the Court of Appeals until after they go through the trial of all of their claims. It's more efficient. That's what Congress has determined. But the court has said that even though 
Congress has structured the system of appeals in that way in the federal courts that it has a very different idea for the administrative agencies that it didn't want to give administrative agencies the same kind of respect that district courts have. Why are the conservatives on the court so intent on trying to dismantle the administrative state to give more power to the judiciary? I think there's a number of sort of paradoxes here. I mean, the court has been very accepting of strong executive authority, but very suspicious of administrative authority. And I guess the positive aspect of their decisions is that they were trying to prod Congress to take more responsibility for policy decisions that affect us all, as opposed to delegating or allowing administrative agencies to reach such important decisions. That is the positive part about the the suspicion of administrative agency power, because administrative agencies do exercise such powerful policy preferences or do reflect those policy preferences in a way that affects all of our business and private lives from the pandemic to export controls to emissions of carbon dioxide. But there is a problem, because the problem is if Congress doesn't go into the weeds and craft all these policies with great care, the question is who's going to pick up the slack. And so our government has been shaped for the last 75 years in a way that encourages Congress to delegate to agencies. And the court is in a process of trying to pull that back and to say that if there's going to be any kind of important rules, those rules should come from Congress and not from these administrative agencies. So it's a view of going back to the way the country was 75 years ago, and there is some merit to it, but if one doesn't have faith that Congress will take up the challenge and exercise all of these important roles that the court wants it to to play, then we're going to be left in a situation where we're not being governed by any entity very effectively. I mean, I'm just wondering why the liberals went along with this decision. Are they just throwing up their hands and saying, we can't fight this anymore? It's a great question why the liberal justices on the court decided to cut back the power of administrative agencies in the Axon case. It may be that they were afraid that there would be a worse decision if they didn't go along with their majority colleagues in this case. That's one hypothesis. Or for another, they may have thought that it's healthy to air all of these constitutional challenges to agency authority. And finally, when the courts reject most of them, then that will be less room for disagreement in the future. And then administrative enforcement actions can proceed without this kind of ping pong balls in terms of being hauled into court on these constitutional actions. But there are dozens, if not hundreds, of cases that are pending now in which these constitutional questions have been raised. And so at least for the next you know, five years, you will see district courts having to decide case after case of these innovative challenges to administrative agency authority. And that can't be in the good in the short term for the individuals, the courts, or for the administrative agencies. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. 
I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.